1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your
0: favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: This week, a conversation about the fire breathing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones with one of the journalists who knows him best, John Ronson. A couple of weeks ago, the far right website InfoWars voluntarily filed for bankruptcy. Rather than a blow, it could be a big help to the website's founder. People controlling the governments were involved in this. Last year, Alex Jones was found liable for defamation damages, for falsely claiming that the mass killing of children at Sandy Hook back in 2012 was a hoax. Filing for bankruptcy delays the day he has to pay the bereaved damages. It puts the spotlight back on a man revered by part of the American right, but reviled by others as a maniac prone to unhinged rants based on nothing but his own fevered imagination. So what does John Ronson make of it all? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. John Ronson's been a student of the American right for decades, most recently with his acclaimed podcast, Things Fell Apart. The last time I saw John was in Cleveland in the summer of 2016, where Republicans had gathered to re Donald Trump as their presidential nominee. On the banks of the river, outdoors far from the convention centre, was a gathering of conspiracy theorists and ultra-nationalists. And presiding over them all was Alex Jones. Things are different now. Donald Trump is no longer president, for one thing. I'm in London and John is in an often noisy Manhattan. And I started off by asking him what he first thought of Alex Jones when he first met him back in the 1990s.
0: It's interesting because most conspiracy broadcasters at the time were just very poor, just not very good at it. Boring, boring men sitting in studios talking about the all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill, Mm -hmm. droning on. Yet there was such an appetite for it. So the world was waiting for somebody who could do it well. And that was Alex Jones. He had incredible oratory skills. And it was clear from the very beginning that he was this kind of exceptional person, partly because the people around him were just so impressed that they they were such fans of his. But also just in conversation, he had a very, you know, that fluid, strange language that he has was on display back then. And this is before the internet was
1: really even a thing. How was he getting his message out there? How was he building this audience when he was just... 26-year-old Alex Jones from Texas.
0: Well, I went to his house in Austin and saw it happen. He he had a he had a shortwave ISDN kind of setup in a child's bedroom in his house with choo-choo train wallpaper on the walls and an Empire Strikes Back poster. So he would just sit in this child's bedroom, broadcasting these apocalyptic, doomy, extraordinary messages down the ISDN line, and it was going out on AOL uh, and on shortwave. What was extraordinary was that, as I say, he was completely unknown outside of sort of militia, white separatist circles, anti-government circles, and also Austin hipster circles. But he had a huge, you know, for for the lack of technology, he had already a a huge fan base. Part of his shtick, I want to say,
1: is that that when he whips himself up into this apoplectic fury to the point where he almost seems like a man possessed. you will not stop you've done some really fascinating in-depth reporting into his school days where that was I want to say again, part of his kind of act even then. But you explored quite specifically into the circumstances of his family leaving their hometown and uncovered quite a lot. I, I know it's a little bit of a tangent before we get on to the main current thing, but it's so fascinating. Just tell us what you can about that.
0: So Alex was a, clearly a, an erratic teenager. He'd run down the corridors yelling, Hail Satan, and smash his head into lockers. It came to a head one day in class when... This friend of his, uh, they were having a fight over a girl. I think Alex was trying to chat up this guy's girlfriend. And the guy confronted Alex about it. And Alex lost it and beat the guy almost to death. The guy still has skull injuries, which means it's affected the rest of his life. And a few weeks later, Alex was beaten up at a party for this. And that is why he left town. So that personality was there from as long... Far back as people remember when he was 12, 13 years old.
1: And and some of it would be very hard to take, I think, for those supporters he has on the Christian right. This You've mentioned it, him running around the corridors hailing Satan, this weird thing he did turning his tongue black. He seemed claiming himself to be the Antichrist. It is quite a journey. We're talking all about this now because Alex Jones is uh, very much in the news Following the decision of Infowars, the huge media empire he set up, to declare and file for bankruptcy, some say that this is a bit of a ruse on his part to escape paying damages to the families of Sandy Hook. Now, I want you to explain what did happen at Sandy Hook and what Alex Jones made his name in some ways by saying didn't happen at Sandy Hook
0: here in newtown connecticut the site today of a mass
1: shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children
0: in december 2012 in newton connecticut a man burst into a into the sandy hook elementary school and killed 20 very young children i think six seven years old and six adults the problem with conspiracy theorists is that they'll they have a template and they'll put whatever happens in real life into that template. So after San, and one of the templates is the government do false flag operations to take our guns away. Hitler
1: took the guns. Stalin took the guns. Mao took the guns. Fidel okay. Castro took the guns. Germany. Hugo Chavez took the guns.
0: That's a huge enduring conspiracy theory on the on the right in America. So that's what that's what Alex Jones started saying about Sandy Hook that it was a false flag operation. The kids hadn't been killed. So don't ever think
1: the globalists that have hijacked this country wouldn't stage something like this. They kill little kids.
0: But it didn't stop there. Alex, through inference and through the fact that he has very troubled fans, started harassing the parents of children who'd been killed in school shootings parents of dead children would be walking down the street and Alex Jones fans would walk up to them and start bracing and harassing them. And so eventually they had enough, the parents, and they, they took Alex to court. Major legal victory for eight Connecticut families and one first responder who sued InfoWars founder and noted conspiracy spreader Alex Jones. Alex didn't engage in the process, didn't turn up to hearings and so on. And now he's declared bankrupt because it's clear that the walls are closing in on him.
1: And that's because the uh, the courts have found in favour of the parents, and there's a risk of ordering huge damages to be paid by infowars, and hence yeah. the speculation that this declaration of bankruptcy is to avoid those penalties. You've told us the effect of those claims on the families themselves, making their lives really a misery. But what do you think the effect of this Sandy Hook
0: was a hoax claim of Alex Jones's was on America itself? Obviously, I think a lot about why there's so much magical thinking in in America and, and also in Britain. In the 90s, when I first was hanging out with people like Alex Jones, I would go to gun shows. And the conspiracy tables at the gun shows were overflowing. Even though the conspiracy VHSs at the time were so boring, you couldn't get to the end of them. So there was always an appetite for conspiracy theories. Then, at the same time, there was all these people like who were into UFOs and Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle. Then you had these kind of magical thinking wellness experts. All these like disparate the people who would buy the Weekly the Weekly World News in, in supermarkets. What happened with the internet is that they all like found each other and got together and and you know would form these great big movements like QAnon and into that came this really dark stuff about paedophilia yeah, Pizzagate Sandy Hook it's it coarsened so I think there was a lot of magical thinkers out there and I think the, the great danger of what people like Alex were doing is they turned this coalition of magical thinkers much darker by bringing in things like paedophile cabals and children being killed in school shootings not actually happening. We've talked a lot on this podcast about these conspiracy theories, particularly
1: on the right, and how often an element of them is this accusation or this claim that children are the victims of the dark conspiracy. But I can't help but wonder how it was that this claim of his, that the people involved in Sandy Hook were faking it, that they were so-called crisis actors, that the bereaved parents were lying that the, in, the signal that many got to harass and go after these parents, how did that not repel most Americans, even some of those people who had previously supported Alex Jones? I suppose I'm asking how he managed to retain support even after going after the most vulnerable people imaginable, those who've lost children to a violent attack. And I suppose here's where we introduce the name Donald Trump, because Donald Trump was continuing to go on Alex Jones' show and to praise him saying you you know you have a great
0: reputation even after he'd made the Sandy Hook claims. How do you explain that? Horrible as it is to think about it, I think for a lot of people, for a lot of Alex Jones's fans, they kind of knew that Sandy Hook really happened, but it was a metaphor for them. It was a a metaphor, you know, for for their long-standing conspiracy theories about the government wants to come in and take our guns away. This is a very big, it's hard to to understand in Britain, but it's a huge thing in America. So this idea of, of the government is going to control our guns is a huge fear among the radical right to the extent that they will even tolerate These horrific and clearly, you know, metaphoric conspiracy
1: theories. I mean, while this case has been rolling on, Alex Jones has officially at least changed his position and now now says that he accepts that Sandy Hook, Hook did happen.
0: How sincere do you think that conversion is? It's really hard to talk about that kind of stuff about Alex. And the reason why I think is, you know, Alex's brain works in different ways to the way that Your brain works and my brain works, I think is the fact of it. Uh, I went to Alex's custody hearing in Austin a few years ago and a court expert diagnosed him as having a narcissistic personality disorder and... Uh, you know, I think that answers a lot of questions. Narcissists want to be the smartest people in the room. And sometimes the way to be the smartest person in the room is to come up with some counterintuitive information that nobody else has. And quite often that's a conspiracy theory, hence the predominance of narcissists in, in leadership of the conspiracy theory movement, I, I would say. So it's, it's almost like in Alex's mind, is it true? Is it not true? Is kind of immaterial because he's not a rational person in that way. I think that's very, very uh, insightful That the, in a way that we have to look in the realm of psychology
1: as much as politics to understand this phenomenon. I mean, you were onto it very early. You, you were looking at him specifically, but also others. More than 20 years ago, because of that way of thinking, conspiracist thinking, it is actually much more mainstream even. I mean, it's certainly more prevalent now than it was then. You've partly explained why that is, that uh, the internet enabled people who, as you put it, were magical thinkers to to find each other and and, and therefore gain strength in numbers. But you've also written something that intrigued me, which is you get a renaissance of conspiracy theories when those in power behave conspiratorially. In other words, this isn't just on the conspiracists, this growth in conspiracy thinking, but something actually in in the real world and specifically in the conduct of those
0: in power. Explain to us what what lay behind that. Oh, well, there's many occasions of our leaders behaving in conspiratorial manners. Just look at the run-up to the Iraq war. Look at the Clinton government's actions against white separatists in the 90s, Waco, Ruby Ridge. I mean, this this is outrageous stuff That, that should never have happened. Uh, But wasn't that police ineptitude or FBI ineptitude rather than a conspiracy? Yes. Conspiracy theorists believe that the government put tear gas into David Koresh's church and then set it on fire on a windy day to kill everybody inside. So there are conspiracy theories about Waco, which, you know, evidently aren't true. However, the whole thing Yes, it was police ineptitude. Well, it was government ineptitude. It was the ATF. It was the FBI. It was ineptitude. But there was an attitude there, right? There was an attitude about, maybe a glib way of putting it, is the Cold War was over. There was no one, you know, to point the the weaponry at. And so they decided to look for the enemy within. And the enemy within were these white radicals from the 90s. And they, through Waco and so on, they, they prodded a hornet's nest. I notice
1: in our conversation even now you refer to him often by his first name (laughs) and there just then I mean you absolutely didn't express sympathy for the thinking but you've expressed sort of some understanding of it I mean you've met him a few times On some level, do you quite like Alex Jones?
0: Well, here's the funny thing. So in the late 90s, me and him snuck into Bohemian Grove together and it was an incredible adventure. Bohemian Grove is this... uh, very posh summer camp in the forests, the redwood forests of uh, Northern California, where people like George Bush and Dick Cheney were rumoured to put on robes and have a ritual that culminated in a human effigy being thrown into a bonfire in front of a giant stone owl. So so I snuck into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones in, in the late 90s. When Alex, I should point out, was still... He wasn't spreading anyone, you know, anything like the malevolence that he spreads today. You know, he was sort of Austin, he was Keep Austin weird back then. So we snuck into Bohemian Grove together and had this extraordinary adventure, which I ended my book, Them, with. And have great memories of of that night because it was a life-changing, fantastic adventure to have. The other thing I like about Alex is that I think his oratory skills, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, are are extraordinary. He's an extraordinarily talented orator. It's just a real shame that he uses his skills in such malevolent ways Uh, because what happened, I think, was in the mid-2000s, Alex got rich. He started selling supplements and became extremely rich. Supplements, we should explain, meaning like vitamin supplements, health supplements, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, male vitality pills, that kind of thing. So he had a lot of money, he had a lot of power, and unfortunately, it clearly went to his head and turned him all the more malevolent. And these terrible theories that he started to postulate about Sandy Hook and so on, Uh, I think, came from that toxic mix of money and power. Really interesting. That might actually answer one thing I've wondered
1: about, which is the shift. As you say, once, you know, back in the day, he was keep Austin weird, and then he becomes this completely other figure. my, My thought is about the shift in terms of punching up and punching down. It's obvious he still does punch up, and there's this, you know, stuff he does about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama smelling of sulfur. I, I, was, I was reading the other day, there, there's a, a guy on the radio who apparently trumps on his show frequently. He said, me and Hillary are demons. Said we smell like sulfur. You know, claiming they're the devil. He still goes after politicians at the top. But by going after the bereaved parents of Sandy Hook, for example, and others, it does seem as if part of the shift is he's not afraid now, as a rich and powerful man, to punch down to some of the people who are, in a way, the most vulnerable imaginable.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people around him were nervous that this would end very, very badly for Infowars, and it was an immoral thing to do, and so it turned out. Infowars has now filed
1: for bankruptcy. How damaging do you think that is, perhaps in terms of just how he is perceived by his followers, or do you think he remains
0: hugely influential and or, and almost hero worshipped by those who follow him? That's a really hard question to answer. You know, he went on a rant against me not so long ago, uh, the only reason I know was because I got one email. Uh, because he's been deplatformed, and deplatforming for good or for ill works. So now that it's very very hard to watch him for wars. I have no doubt that his viewership has gone down an, an enormous amount, and it's maybe back down to yeah his core audience because you can't watch it on YouTube. You can't, you know, maybe he'll be invited back on Twitter now that Elon Musk is in charge. But I think it's his his hardcore fans won't care at all about the bankruptcy. They'll just you know be happy that that he's still out there doing his stuff, assuming that he is. Well, talking of
1: deplatforming. You bring us John to a tradition on this podcast, which is we always ask our guests a "what else" question, and this one is. Quite related because, of course, the platform in question is Twitter, and Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, has now bought it. Uh, where he, it's presumed, will apply his very distinct version, absolutist version of free speech, taking the shackles off. There's huge discussion, very naturally, about whether someone else who was deplatformed might be coming back, namely Donald Trump, who was kicked off Twitter and other social media platforms. Uh, for his role in inciting the violence of the January the 6th insurrection. How do you see this playing out? And let's say the speculation is right and Donald Trump is back on Twitter. What do you think the impact of that will be?
0: I can't see how Elon Musk taking over Twitter won't lead to a tidal wave of misinformation. I just can't see how that won't happen. Uh, it's funny, I, I, I was watching the other night Elon Musk's brilliant two interviews with uh, Chris Chris Anderson from TED which I really recommend people watch especially the one that's not in front of the audience the one that's at Tesla Austin headquarters where he delivers this incredible hour-long sort of tech utopian vision for a wonderful future. I have no idea whether whether it's real or not, but it was incredibly inspiring and exciting to listen to. But a number of times in those interviews, he talked about how much he cares, and he was alluding to his Asperger's, how much he cares about the truth, how he's pathologically interested in the truth. Now, he's about to create a platform where truth is going to lose its currency even more than it is now, now, of course, you know, the libertarian argument is that there's a greater truth. If you allow free speech absolutism, you reach a greater truth. The real truth will drown out the lies. But the last few years have shown us that's just that's not happening, right? Because of the algorithms, because of the echo chambers, because of the tribalism. So I, I, I would love to know. And this, is a, this isn't a glib question. This is a genuine... I would genuinely love to know how his pathological adherence to the truth tallies with what will obviously be a byproduct of his free speech absolutism. Well, how that plays out, we will, of
1: course, watch closely for the moment. John Ronson, thanks so much for coming on Politics Weekly
0: America. Jonathan, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And that is all from me for this week. A few things to note before I go. First, The Guardian's new daily newsletter, First Edition, launched this week, bringing you the day's top stories and why they matter. My colleagues Archie Bland and Nemo Omer will read everything they can about everything, from world events and politics to pop culture and science. And they'll give you the lowdown direct into your inbox every weekday at 7am. So do sign up to First Edition, for free at theguardian.com slash first edition. But if you're looking to get away from the week's news, well, we have something for you too, because every Saturday, The Guardian's Weekend Podcast brings you some of the best pieces from The Guardian and The Observer that you may have missed, read by some fantastic narrators. For example, this week you can hear an interview with the band Arcade Fire, Marina Hyde's column expertly taking down Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and much more. So do search for Weekend on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. I'm Jonathan Friedland and thanks, as always, for listening.